Hello, and welcome to the So What podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. Scripture interpreting scripture. What do we mean by that? Because I think that's a very helpful one in answering this question. Yeah, some of those things that Travis was mentioning, especially when you think about the clarification of what we mean by authority of scripture, scripture interpret scripture becomes what we talk about as a hermeneutic, a means of interpreting and understanding something. That God's word becomes the thing that we reference actually to understand itself in that. You can think through Hebrews, you know, that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that there's a consistency in not just God's presence in Scripture, but in His character in Scripture. And so that we look and we read the Scripture through how God has always worked, and it becomes our primary interpreter of itself, especially on that, and Travis mentioned this too, is that Christological horizon of Scripture. To say Scripture interprets Scripture is to say more than, but not less, that the parts help to interpret the whole, and the whole helps to interpret the parts. And I agree with that and entirely. The, the clearer sections should interpret the darker sections, or those statements that are more less contested should help us interpret the ones that are more obscure or difficult. I mean, Peter acknowledges, if you hold to Petrine authorship of Second Peter, Peter acknowledges there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. So the New Testament admits that about another part of the New Testament. Right, right. So the clarity of Scripture, whatever it means, doesn't mean that all parts of Scripture are equally clear. But the statement, I mean, if you want to look at a central statement about the Bible— from the Bible itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Or Peter talks about how God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. So to talk about the sufficiency of scripture is to say, and the clarity of scripture is to say, it is sufficient for the purpose that it declares of itself for teaching and training in righteousness in the church. It is clear about the way of salvation and how to find salvation. And I want to talk about the rule of faith maybe in, in a second, but if you think of the earliest Christian creed, perhaps that's caught up in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 12 is Jesus is Lord. That would be an example of the clarity of scripture. Yeah. Jesus now, I mean, you think of Paul on the road to Damascus, his conversion experience, this light is shining from heaven and he says, who are you, Lord? He gives the name Yahweh. Who are you? That's the Jewish name for God, the one God. And the response is, I am Jesus who, whom you are persecuting, which, you know, if he wasn't already on the ground, would have knocked him on the ground, that revelation. So that's the new revelation is that this Lord that we have read about, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who led his children out of slavery in Egypt and has promised a deliverer, a son of David, to sit on the throne forever. 
is now, the new revelation is that Lord is incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth and has died on the cross and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven and sent his spirit to constitute the church and send them out on mission. Those things would be sufficiently clear from the Bible. And they would then in the Apostles' Creed, for example, probably the next earliest Catholic creed, Catholic little c in terms of universally recognized, are statements that pertain kind of to the story of the incarnation, essentially. And we have, if you want to go back, listeners, and listen, there's a whole series of podcasts recorded explaining the doctrine that we get from the Apostles' Creed. Just to be clear, I want to say, I affirm the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. What's less clear to me is that it gets us out of the hermeneutical difficulty. Yes. So one half dozen of the other. Yeah. Right. Yes. When we talk about the interpretation of Scripture, we are now bringing into coordinate relationship with a primary emphasis on the Bible as the authority in the Christian life and in the practice of the church and as the faith is, which is what tradition means, the handing on of something else, as the faith is transmitted from generation to generation. We have issues like, or things that we would want to discuss, we won't have time to discuss them all today, but the canon of Scripture, for example, that our revelation from God has a canonical shape, which means there are two testaments to the Christian Bible, and there's 66 books, and the story begins in Genesis and concludes in Revelation, and there is a redemptive arc to the story. We can talk about themes like creation, fall, redemption, and restoration as we chart the history of God after Adam and Eve sin in the garden, calling a people to himself, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, the last things, there's this arc going through with obviously the centerpiece being the story of the incarnation and the events surrounding Jesus's incarnation in life, death, resurrection, ascension. There's the context that we read scripture in, which is as a community. So as a, a rebuff to, if anything, Christianity is a communal religion. It rebuffs hyper-individuality mm -hmm. that we see in contemporary Western culture, which was possibly, you know, in a misunderstood, you know, we talk about collateral damage of the Reformation. Well, that's not what Luther and Calvin and the Reformers were going for, was this hyper-individual existence of the human person, but a communal existence. So the church is the interpretive community. So we read scripture together. We look at it together. It is preached in a public setting on a weekly basis. But I think if we're just to home in on one key right now, it would be a Christological key to reading scripture or how should disciples of Jesus read the Bible? How are they taught to read the Bible? What do we see in the Acts of the Apostles when the first Christians are preaching the gospel when there isn't a New Testament to appeal to? How do they read the Old Testament and how does it get used in their sermons? Those would be something to look at. There is this passage in an article by C.S. Lewis called The Grand Miracle, where he says, supposing you had before you a manuscript of some great work, either a symphony or a novel, then there comes to you a person saying, here is a new bit of the manuscript that I found. It is the central passage of that symphony or the central chapter of that novel. The text is incomplete without it. I have got the missing passage, which is really the center of the whole work. The only thing you could do would be to put this new piece of the manuscript in that central position and then see how it reacted on the whole to the rest of the work. If it constantly brought out new meanings from the whole of the rest of the work, if it made you notice things in the rest of the work which you had not noticed before, then I think you would decide that it was authentic. On the other hand, if it failed to do that, then however attractive it was in itself, you would reject it. 
He goes on to say that the central passage or the central chapter of Christianity is the story of the incarnation, the story of a descent and a resurrection. So, does that fit the test that Lewis mentions? If you suppose that the story of Jesus of Nazareth as narrated in the Gospels and as applied in doctrine in the epistles or discussed in the Acts of the apostles, the story of the, you know, the origin of the church and the missionary ventures of the first of Jesus's disciples. Does it make sense of the whole narrative? Does it help to illumine things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise? Or does it bring new meaning into words that were written, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years prior to that? The apostles certainly thought so. They did. <laughs> they did. And they learned to read the Bible that way from Jesus himself. And so if you just think of the audacity of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to quote from the Ten Commandments, you know, the center of the law, and say, You have heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery with another woman. But I say to you, and then to give an, an authoritative interpretation of that in a more stringent or strict way, mm-hmm. he's giving a new Torah. Yeah, you've got Jesus presenting himself as the authoritative interpreter of scripture. And in the Gospel of Luke, you have the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yes, I thought of that. I mean, so Jesus is not only the authoritative interpreter of Scripture, but there are vast elements about Scripture that are about Him. So the story goes, there's two disciples, they're kept from seeing Him. He kind of asked, what's going on? And they say, are you crazy? Have you not heard what's going on? And where you uh, been, man? Yeah, catches Jesus up with the happenings. <laughs> Let me tell you about your deaths. And Jesus, right Have you then not and been there. on Twitter? You don't know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need to check what's trending uh, to find out what's going on. So they're, they're bummed and they're saying, you know, we, we were following Jesus. We believed him to be the Messiah, uh, but he died. And then this morning, uh, it seems like his body uh, is gone and, and we don't know what to do. And Jesus says, guys, don't you see what's going on here? This is exactly what the prophets have been saying all along. It was necessary that Christ Christ should suffer these things and and enter his glory. And then in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we see here that Jesus is both the ultimate interpreter of scripture and its subject. So our question when we come to the text of scripture is always, what does this tell us about Jesus? Mm -hmm. How does it draw, draw us to greater faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus? And I think that, that, that to sort of maybe pull it together, we will continue to debate questions of interpretation. And in reality, it's not as if the Roman Catholic Church is this monolithic, you know, there are dissenting voices about all sorts of things and, and official doctrines and things like that. But at the end of the day, when we are working in the life of the local church, the goal in our preaching and our uh, scripture is to draw people to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we want to make it as clear as we can and not hinder that drawing power of the Spirit. Yeah. These issues of interpretation were live issues in Jesus's day. If you look at some of his confrontations with the Pharisees, it's over how Scripture is read and interpreted. You know, he asked them in Luke 10 even, how do you read the Scripture? What is written in it? And his point, what he keeps coming back to with them is, if you had read Scripture properly, you would see that these things speak of me. And his disciples, to be fair, didn't understand that. Peter tries to prevent Jesus from going to the cross you know, at the midpoint in the in the Gospels, and Jesus rebukes him, saying, "Get behind me, Satan!" When Jesus had just said, "This is what the Scriptures and the what the Law and the Prophets have said should happen: the Christ is it has been appointed. The Scriptures unbreakable." Jesus says, "It's been appointed that the Christ should suffer and die," and 
that was not widely understood among the rabbis of the first century. and Or anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I mean, nobody uh, expected a dying Messiah. I mean, they had lots of people who thought they were the Messiah, and they died, and that showed they weren't. So you mentioned a minute ago the relationship between Sola Scriptura and individualism. Let's hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah, I was digging into that this past week. It's not very hard to get overwhelmed by the wealth of commentators and thinkers on things about individualism. I did think, as we think about collateral damage of the Reformation, and so Scripture is a good basis for us to work off of, but in that middle of that, and we find ourselves kind of coming back to it throughout the discussion, is this relationship with the individual to God. You find both in Calvin and Luther, you know, what they did is they argued, they valued that a Christian is more than just a ritualistic creature, but that he's also a relational creature, made for relationship with God on an individual level. Now, where that gets probably most crystallized is in the theological statement by Luther about the priesthood of all believers, which is, interestingly enough, from a document he wrote, Luther's Address to the Nobility of the German Nation, which title like that has some baggage for us. But actually was written in response to say the German people who had been marginalized in a marginal place of the church and prioritized saying they are actually as significant people in the kingdom of God as the most holy, most revered, most important officer in the church. And of course, he was referencing First Peter 4, 9. There's reference that you are, that is the Christian, is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That this was not just for Luther, that this was not just a claim for the priesthood, for the professional, the professional clergy. Yeah, yeah. professional yep. clergy, thanks. Mm-hmm. For the clergy, probably a better clarification. But that was for all believers. So that kind of comes as a, a setting and a important value and something that was pursued. And yet there's actually a lot of historical context of really the rise of the individual that's kind of coming before that with humanism, Erasmus, and even Renaissance art, which kind of was the first art designed with perspective, or that's kind of how it's valued. Perspective was a big deal. So all these things, the Reformation actually comes in a setting where individual is actually starting to have a place of primacy. So are you, well, I kind of have two questions. The first one will be, are you suggesting that how much of it is the rise of the individual in Christian theology, how much of it is sort of culturally contextualized and how much of it is scripture interpretation or is it a dialogic or, you know, kind of, Dialogical, that, yeah. That tension between did they interpret scripture that way what, yeah. because of what was happening in the world around them, yeah. or did things begin to happen in the world around them because they interpreted scripture? That I'm, way? I'm not sure. I have a good argument for which one it is, but you see those two things, and certainly the Reformation happens in a context, and then the Enlightenment, which of course is another cultural procession that's happening not long after. Well, I'll go to my second question then on the priesthood of all believers. You've got the material in in Peter's letter which is quoting the Old Testament or alluding, you know, I mean, he's quoting Exodus 19, basically. They're drawing on Exodus 19, that Israel will be a priestly nation. So you have sort of the priesthood of all Israelites, if I may. 
and Israel still had a set-aside priesthood or an ordained priesthood, right? So why is it that we get Luther saying, you know, this material in Peter, it applies to all believers, not just the priests, but the fact that it applies to all believers— using Scripture to interpret Scripture, Exodus 19 to interpret Peter, it doesn't preclude a set-aside ordained priesthood. The priesthood of all Israelites doesn't preclude or rule out the priesthood, the set-aside priesthood in Israel. Shouldn't we not also say, in response to the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers does not rule out a set-aside priesthood in the church? I might distinguish between gifts given to the church in the term, in the distinctions like in Ephesians 4, mm-hmm. of pastors and, and right. teachers. Well, and, I mean, you have deacons um, and overseers in yeah. the New Testament. Um, so you have... The presbyteros, right? Lanier, that was for you. He said yes. that for you. Yeah, I appreciate so that. Those, like, that's, that's the gesture, and gesture no one can see. So those are roles within the body of Christ yeah. that are actually, you know, pneumatological gifts or gifts of the Holy Spirit to the body to help in its edification mm-hmm. and are not to be prioritized in terms of a hierarchy because of the analogy of the body, you know, that Paul well, it gives depends in on what sort of hierarchy, though. Well, I mean, Paul sets himself, in, in Titus, he, he uh, says... In terms of one being more precious to God than another, oh, yeah, or yeah, more valuable not. than another. Right, right. yeah, so That's what I'm, I mean, I'm not suggesting of, that the ordained clergy are more valuable to God. Yes, I know you're not. God I'm has tr- never I'm found clarifying. himself saying, what a... What a I'm just sitting around waiting for O'Reilly to get on the ball with this kind of thing, right? I mean, it's it's not at all what's going on. But what I am saying is you have in the New Testament a hierarchical clerical system. Yes. You have Paul instructing Titus to pick the overseers mm-hmm. in local churches. Mm-hmm. That yes. is not a congregational system. Yeah, I was That's referring not, to a hierarchy you know, of values, yeah, yeah. sorry, so to I, clarify. I mean, I mean an ecclesiological yes. hierarchy. This clergy-laity distinction that yeah, carries yeah. with it a value distinction of— So you have Paul saying, here's a group of churches in this area. We're in charge of deciding who their pastor is. That's— so that's what. It is. So this is fun because now we're at a <laughs> denominational difference. Yeah. That's the model that we follow. Yeah. But here comes the Baptist. The local congregation is the one who, in the absence of Paul and the apostolic office, selects elders. Submit yourself to the apostolic office. Then I mean <laughs> well, that's the answer. <laughs> it's <laughs> there is no there is no text there is no text in the New Testament that says a congregation chooses their elders. But where's the apostolic office? It's with the church. And we are the church. Well, you, well maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> there it is. Uh, well, has that clarified things for listeners? Right, right. So what? Getting very clear. Yeah, well, I mean, I think— uh, What we're I, getting at right here, though, is actually the, a denominational difference yeah, that we is, see because of interpretation of Scripture. So what I'm describing is the Baptistic structure of the church that's a bottom-up approach. And what you're describing, Matt, is a Methodist system and Presbyterian it's, system it's an, and Anglican system. It's an Episcopal system. system where it, well. Yes, yeah. where it, it is a top-down. Yeah, right. so, I mean, and I would just simply say that the congregational model of— <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Because the Presbyterians can't decide what they or want to be. Or top up right? and bottom down. <laughs> uh, Stuck in the middle. Topsy-turvy top, top or something. <laughs> you know, and here we are back at Solar Scriptura, right? Who gets to decide? But, you know, but at the end of the day, that's the thing is, how do we interpret those texts? The question was perfect that you asked after kind of like uh, introduction was, which one was first? Which was the chicken? Which was the egg? Was the Reformation? Was the other cultural historical circumstances. I think maybe a better question as we come to it in individualism and the effects of the after effects of the Reformation is 
where do we struggle and where is individualism maybe have a soil where it's thrived? I don't know. What can we learn from that? Where can we speak to that? I mean, I'm inclined to say we struggle with the priesthood of all believers. I don't see a lot of evidence that the average Christian sees themselves as a yeah. as a priestly, right. as holding some sort of priestly ministry. What they do is they see themselves as their view, our view, my personal view of Jesus, my personal relationship, yeah. which can be a good start, but can be a dangerous rabbit trail. So I'm a little bit inclined to say, and I know I'm not supposed to talk about this anymore, but uh, <laughs> that we do We've done a lousy job with the priesthood of all believers because we don't have a set-aside priesthood to show us what priests look like. Mm. The ordained priests in Israel showed the nation what it looks like to be set apart entirely for God, Mm -hmm. to bring others before God in worship. We've done away with an ordained priesthood in the Protestant world, most of it anyway, and that means that we don't have living examples on a day-in, day-out, week-to-week basis to show our flock what it looks like to be a priest. Isn't it because we're supposed to be the examples? Every single one of us. But not as individuals. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. you, you, need, the, you need someone imitate me as I say, imitate Christ. Yeah, Paul I was said. about to you say need, Paul's statement. You, you don't have the masses imitating the masses. You have the masses, the church, imitating yeah. a teacher. So that's more along the lines of what I, was, what I was getting at, Travis, of what you just said, is there is a chain of imitation from disciple and it's hierarchical. to disciple. <laughs> well, <laughs> in I, some I, think, cases. I think it's more... Horizontal. Of course, you there's do. a course. there's a chain of discipling and disciplers, disciples, disciples. Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about two different things, though. I mean, they overlap. But I'm I would want to say we have some folks who think of themselves in terms of having a priestly ministry, but by and large, in general, I don't think Protestants really think of themselves as yeah. No, I agree with as that. priestly. Right. right. And I'm suggesting that part of the reason is they don't have priests to show them what it looks like. Two comments. One, to clarify the first half of the discussion before we started talking about what are perhaps denominational differences to rule in the local church, congregational model versus an Episcopal model, if you will. There is, of course, a structure to with differing authority in the local church. There is hierarchy in the universe. There's a triune God. There are angels and archangels. There is man who is a little lower than the gods, but who is given authority over the earth and the creatures on the earth. And so we live in a very egalitarian society. We live in a society that rejects authority, that wants to level everything and make it the same, whether it's what bathroom you use or what pronoun is associated with your name or what the weight of your opinion. You know, everything has become very relativized in an ultimate sense so that there's been an evacuation of meaning from society or gender or any of these things that used to house meaning before. So Christianity takes a strong counter stance to that movement. And the hyper-individualism we see in American consumerism, which is only increased by internet usage, social media, shopping on Amazon, all of these things. I never have to go to a store or see a person or interact with a human. You know, if I call, I can get an automated response, what have you. All of these things are reinforcing a view of the human person that is very different from most of human history, very different from the biblical writings, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. 
the notion of the individual is a relatively modern one in terms of human consciousness. There was this communal sense of, I didn't know, my identity was involved with my tribe and my people and the language I spoke and the geography of where we lived and the gods that we worship, all these things constituted my identity. Now we can just, you know, take a selfie and put a filter on it or something and create an image of our lives that is, you know, whatever we curate it to be. And it's very individual. So I want to say that Christianity is a necessary counter voice to the prevailing cultural currents in some of these areas. You are not your own. Yeah. How about that? And yeah, yeah. this is, I think, where I think we still do struggle with that as a church together. I mean, the, the consumer model could be a, and is applied to church life too, which is the church trying to meet the individual, a motivation of how do we meet the individual where they are? And there's right parts to that. But there's also can be oftentimes, say, uh, overshaping, you know, that church looks like the same thing I see when I go to a concert. Maybe I'm getting a little bit of my perspective in that, but or the same thing I go when I go to NFL football game where right. we formulate and we create those things because we're looking for those. And this is where the word, the word individualism, I'm thinking of the word experience, where the driver is my individual experience with God, my individual understanding of God. And what you're saying, Travis, I think is really helpful is that the point of the Reformation when it came to valuing the individual was not simply to say, okay, you have your individual experience. It's going somewhere with that thought. Maybe you can help me. Is it, can is help it helpful along. to say that, and I'm actually drawing on our United Methodist doctrinal statement standards here, is that the individual is important because the grace of God is design, is intended or is we are the objects of God's grace and that is brought to life in our experience. All right. So it's through our experience that our justification comes to life, right? It's through our individual experience that we grow in Christ likeness and bear the fruit of the Spirit increasingly. So that doesn't happen in isolation. But it is a matter of... It's a shared experience. Yeah. 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 And to bring tradition back up, it's a shared experience with those who are no longer with us. Yeah. The communion of saints. We share this experience with Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and the saints, quote unquote, of the Old Testament, as we do with the apostles and up through John Wesley and your grandparents, perhaps, and the people that have handed on the faith to you. Right. It's a communal, transgenerational handing on of experience. Which I think ties back to the point you said a long time ago, Matt, why can't it just be the Bible and me? Because you have been handed yeah. a rich tradition. <laughs> you wouldn't have a Bible if it were just the That's Bible right. and you. <laughs> That's right. Uh, why read commentators? Well, because those commentators are a part of God's people that he's been calling out of sin and death through the grace of his son by his Holy Spirit. Wesley talked about an experiential faith, which meant that truth would be vivified, brought to life in individual experience. And he was the first one to say, you're going to have the most vibrant experience in community. Yeah. A good experiment to bring this home for us and for listeners is to, as you read the Bible, particularly I'm thinking of the New Testament and the letters, is to assume that every time it says you, because this gets lost in 
our English pronouns, that it is a plural you that's referred to. We have a word for that here that I've lived in the South the last few years, y'all. But it's just natural for us to read the Bible as individuals. So we come to a verse like Philippians 1.6 that says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And the first however many years of my Christian experience, I read that as talking about me as an individual. The God is cares about the details of my life, which is true, okay? And that he's going to work them out to a good end, which is also true, okay? That's not to discount those feelings, but the you in Philippians 1.6 is a plural you. In Colossians 3.16, where Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's a plural you. He's talking about the assembly of the church. When you gather together, may the word of God dwell there in a rich way through the preaching, through the explanation of what it means to the congregation which was a feature, you know, of the earliest church services. So there's a communal experience assumed in the Bible itself. This isn't just, you know, a verse a day promise for me that's completely, which I'm not saying God doesn't care about the individual details of our life. Of course, I would go to other passages for that. Like he knows the number of hair on your head and, you know, you're more precious than the birds of the air that he feeds every day, et cetera. But the Philippians passage, the prepositional phrase in you, in Greek is in you mean, and you could translate it among you, which is kind of how I like to do it when just working through them. The yeah. God began a good work among you, which sort of emphasizes the work of God in the community, which is what Paul's point there is. Yeah, so, there might be other places where it works out that way too, but yeah. that one is a particularly useful illustration of the yeah. syntax. 